0: technology. Ah, welcome back to Hertel. Thrilled to have a new face on the program. Another one of our great young voices contributors, Eric Suarez is with us. We're going to go back down south, talk about a little DC policy as it goes to one of our kind of frenemy countries right now, Venezuela down in South America. Eric, how are you, my friend?
2: Great. Thank you for the invite.
0: Uh, thrilled to have you. Here we go again. We understand that there are certain things that poke through all other politics and ideology. Gas prices is one of them. Gas prices go up. Whoever's in the government's going to get the blame for it. Everybody's mad. Everybody's happy. Doesn't matter. Gas is a lag- lagging indicator, and there's all kinds of economics that go into gas prices. However, when the gas prices go up, whoever's in power has got to do something about it. Well, Joe Biden's in power. He's got to do something about it. But one of those somethings he's doing about it involves Venezuela, and it looks— not only on the surface like a bad idea, long-term looks like it could be a very bad idea.
2: It is. Um, Well, we have to analyze the whole situation with Joe Biden and why he decided to go to Venezuela in the first place. And it all starts with um, environmental issues. It all starts with environmental causes that Joe Biden has decided um, to put forward in his policy, especially his energy policy. Uh, At the beginning of his term, we saw how he immediately blocked uh, the uh, Keystone Pipeline, which was going to be a huge, huge deal for U.S. energy and to keep uh, gas prices low to allow the U.S. to be independent on oil, on oil prices. And after that, um, just the worst thing that could have happened to his administration happened, which was uh, the Ukraine war, which disrupted oil prices across the globe. So when you combine those two things and global oil prices go skyrocket, then you find the situation that we're in and the situation that we were, um, especially the first two years of his administration when gas prices went up like crazy. And when you're that desperate, when you see how this is affecting or how it affected the Biden administration, he had no other choice but to uh, go look for Venezuela, which is known as a very, a very oil rich country, but also very known for uh, its highly totalitarian human rights abuses and many other uh, foreign policy that um, the US usually rejects. But um, that's, that's how Biden policy has been acting towards us in the last few years. And the main reason is oil.
0: Yeah, it's not unusual for us to do business with untoward characters abroad. Look, we've been tied up in the Middle East for many, many years, including several conflicts. I remember I was there. Um, We know that there's bad people that we have to do business with. For folks that just haven't maybe paid attention or aren't familiar, give us the lay of the land in Venezuela as it exists today. Nicolas Maduro you know, he had some choppy water a couple of years ago, but has since reconsolidated power. looks like he's in a pretty solid position. However, the entire country is still suffering greatly under his dictatorship. Uh, l- give folks the lay of the land of exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about Venezuela, the government, the dictatorship and the people of Venezuela that are having to suffer under that, because you need that piece of the puzzle before you get to why the policy is good or bad. Right.
2: Yes. Um, the Overall, Venezuela has been a country that has been under totalitarian rule over more than uh, 20 years. In, actually, I was born in 1999 already under the socialist regime of Hugo Chavez that then uh, was handpicked successor, Ligolas Maduro. Um, in throughout the years, you have seen a country that was very rich, very advanced, compared to other Latin American countries, deeply collapsing to economic, political, and human rights abuses um, it has become a chaos. I remember in 2014, you could see around people getting food from garbage and and eating from remains of food that went in the streets, going to open uh, garbage cans across the city, just looking for food. It was a big state of desperation. And that's on the economic side. When you go to the political rights abuses, in 2014, in 2017, people went to the streets, they tried, uh, to peacefully uh, look for change in the country, and they were faced with repression like we haven't seen in our continent in a long time. We saw uh, young people my age and younger uh, at the time uh, killed, uh, straight up um, murdered by this regime that used not only uh, tear gas and, and uh, water trucks to just repress, but they also were feeling... Uh, their guns with, um, let's say, not conventional uh, ammunition that resulted in the death of many people, especially young people who were the front line of those protests. And the ones who weren't killed, they were tortured for many years. So it's, it is a very dark, um, let's say, situation. It's a dark it's a situation. It's a dark country when it comes to human rights, and that same um, action those those actions led to the uh, migration of more than seven million people, which is like twenty five percent of our country um especially young people have migrated across across the across the continent so it is a very dangerous regime it's a regime that doesn't care about human rights it doesn't care it's about its people and that's the that's the partner that the administration has decided to make business with.
0: Yeah. Eric Suarez joining us. You're writing in Real Clear World. We're going to link to the entire piece. A lot of links in this piece, by the way. Make sure you click through all the links as well so you get the full background. Kind of the heart of your piece gets to something I want to talk about. That, like, we, we mentioned the Middle East. Look, the House of Saud does really despicable things. They, they believe really bad things. They're not good people, the people that run Saudi Arabia. They know how to keep the oil flowing. You never question. In fact, the problem usually is they restrict it down so they make more money off it. They know how to produce and put out oil. They're really good at it. One of the things you argue in your piece is even if you got past the moral stuff, even if you got past the dictatorship and all the bad stuff that's happened in Venezuela, strictly on business terms this doesn't make sense because they have production issues they have not upgraded their infrastructure especially in the last 20-25 years as chevron's really been restricted by government they can't get the outside in because of sanctions and things like that to upgrade and maintain the production facilities they got all the oil in the world but if you can't produce it refine it ship it all that stuff it's just a bunch of oil that's laying around Talk about that aspect of it, because if you're talking about a business deal, which is what we're doing, we're cutting a business deal with them, they're not going to be a reliable partner on any facet.
2: Correct. They're not a reliable partner, and there's two main reasons for that, Uh, especially the first one is that the, the sanctions imposed on the Venezuelan government and the Venezuelan production sector are based on their commitment to reduce human rights abuses to reduce, uh, to allow for more democratic reforms, and to allow for more freedom of speech on the streets. That was the logic in which the sanctions were imposed, to create that that sense of change and enforce it by economic pressure. Uh, What Biden is doing, what President Biden is doing right now, is trusting that the Venezuelan government will continue uh, some reforms or some attempts of making reforms in the country. The logic is that because the Venezuelan government went into negotiating table with the opposition and is allowing, um, in between marks, uh, uh, free uh, primary elections in the country, uh, the the sanctions are reducing and now some uh, flow of oil is coming into the market and being able to negotiate. But the reality is that long term, we know that the Venezuelan government will not adhere to those Advances. The Venezuelan government already in the primary has been persecuting candidates. It has been pressuring its followers to promote death threats and to um, attack certain candidates on the race. Uh, we're seeing that freedom of speech hasn't improved. We have seen that uh, human rights violations and tortures are still happening. So this policy, even on, on, a, on a, let's say, trust basis between the U.S. And, and a commitment of change has no future at all. So that's one of the main issues with this policy. And the second one, as as you mentioned, is the production part. Venezuela is a country that its socialist policies has destroyed completely the production area, Uh, the the oil production. Um, We used to produce more than, uh, I believe, three million barrels of oil per day, and now we don't produce even half of that. We don't produce even a quarter of that, even I could say. And the main problem with that is that if you want to believe that you can re- Uh, revamp the oil sector in Venezuela and the sanctions will not uh, will allow removing the sanctions will allow for the from the oil production uh, to to increase. That's uh, not understanding the situation in Venezuela. That's not understanding the damage that has been caused by socially by 20 years of socialist policies to the oil sector and not understanding that the ones who are controlling the oil in Venezuela right now are the Iranians. So you're inviting even uh, you're even funding more uh, not only a very dangerous ally in latin America you're, joining, you're funding one of your major enemies in um, in the Middle East. One of the Venezuela is so desperate to revamp its oil production that it has hired um, Iranian companies and has sold some of their plants to Iranian to the Iranian government which is something very dangerous for a region, but it's also very dangerous for the U.S. to depend on if we want to keep oil prices down.
0: Eric Suarez joining us. You just mentioned, let's talk about it, the criticism of U.S. policy towards Venezuela. Look, this isn't in use. We've, we've heard it towards Cuba for years and other things. It's like, well, of course they're having trouble because we're sanctioning them. And of course they're turning to Iran and Russia and these untoward actors because we're sanctioning them to stop sanctioning them. It's a chicken in the egg argument. You have a dictatorship that's doing bad things, so you sanction them, and then they claim the sanctions is the root cause of all their problems and American imperialism, this, that, and the other. How do we parse through that argument? Because you've heard that all your life, quite literally in your case, because you're a young guy. You've heard this all your life. Well, it's all America's fault. It's all the sanctions fault. Yes, the sanctions have cause. How do we unglue that ball a little bit, do you think?
2: Well, first, you have to understand the the base of the sanctions and understand also the timeline of Venezuelan collapse. Uh, I feel like once you know those two things, you already can make your own judgment. And that judgment is going to logically end that the sanctions did not cause Venezuela's collapse. So this the let's say the major economic uh, decline in Venezuela started in 2013, 2014. By that time, sanctions imposed by the US weren't imposed on the economic sector, weren't imposed in, men, in, in the production sectors of the country. They were imposed on certain individuals. For example, President uh, dictator Nicolas Maduro wasn't able to travel or have activities or have any kind of investment in the US, clearly because he was a um, sanctioned person. Uh, and many people around, the, uh, let's say the leadership of the regime did, uh, were also sanctioned by that time. The real sanctions imposed on the government, on the production sector came with many years later by the Trump administration. So the previous, uh, Sanctions, let's say the the personal sanctions were imposed by the Obama administration and many administrations before. They were very common, but the other, uh, the more aggressive, if you want to call them like that, um, sanctions were imposed by Trump, the Trump administration. By that time, that Trump, the Trump administration had already imposed those sanctions. Venezuela was already experiencing experiencing a high decline in its economy, in its economy. So when you put those factors next to each other and you check the timeline, you cannot argue logically that the, um, the, the sanctions were the main cause for Venezuela's economic decline because that's a lie. And that's something that is uh, completely dispro- uh, disproven. And second of all, um, the old production sector has been collapsing in Venezuela way before the sanctions imposed on, on the old sector. And when you read and analyze what the um, the main reasons for the sanctions were put on the economic sector in the first place, you can see that the Venezuelan regime has been using the, the, the oil production sector to first finance um, war equipment, to finance repression equipment, to finance human rights violations, and to finance themselves through corruption. So there is none of that money was actually benefiting the people. It wasn't benefiting the um it wasn't funding any positive uh let's say program inside of Venezuela like socialist claim and the sanction and you can see the result of that because when imposed the sanctions Venezuela did not collapse even more in fact after the sanctions were imposed you could see that other sectors developed because the money laundry machine that Venezuela is had to find another source of revenue so that's a very interesting fact that happened during those times so when you know these two things and you know this two timeline this timeline you have to logically argue or come to the conclusion that in the end the sanctions did not affect venezuelan people it did not affect the venezuelan people it affected the venezuelan regime officials it affected the regime and it stopped and it put him in, put them in such a dangerous position that they had to especially from 2016 to 2020 um Allow the figure of of Juan Guaido to um, to be protected by the U.S. and they have to comply with U.S. Uh, policy and 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 they were on on the let's call it they were under the mercy of the U.S. if you want to say it, in some something like that way.
0: Yeah, Eric Suarez joining us. Okay, we talked about that. This is a deal. The Biden administration, for all practical purposes, that cut a deal with Venezuela. What did we get? What did they get? Break down the actual particulars of this specific um, transaction because some of the things we gave them kind of raised a few eyebrows and some of the things we're getting back raised some eyebrows.
2: It, it, it raises a lot of eyebrows and it raises a lot of concerns, especially uh, deep concerns, because I feel this is one of the worst deals that the U.S. has ever made uh, that I have even that I remember. Um, just for context this deal hasn't it wasn't just a one uh one meeting one deal kind of kind of situation it was uh, several meetings that have been happening through uh many months more almost a whole year and that had been resulting in different outcomes the first one uh was the exchange of two of nicolas maduro's cousins that were uh, that were here in the us held over drug trafficking trafficking uh, charges they were convicted and they were uh, prosecuted perse- and convicted. Um, we gave uh, the first meeting gave away uh, traded them with some uh, US citizens that were in Venezuela also um, in jail some uh, oil businessmen that were over there. Uh, that was very interesting because that was the first time the U.S. broke its policy of dealing directly and recognizing um, the interim government of Juan Guaido as part of the Venezuelan government. And the second part is that um, when the when the oil prices started going uh, up across the globe due to the Ukraine war and the oil supply in the world was going, going down, um, The sanctions were lifted and Venezuela was able to negotiate with other countries as well. Uh, The main company in the US started negotiating and got lifted uh, and got allowed to to negotiate with Venezuela was Chevron. And this allowed Venezuela to start regaining um, some ground that it had lost, some revenue that it had lost through the years. And at the end of the day, what ended up resulting from this deal has been up till now that the interim governor of, of Juan Guaido has completely disbanded and disappeared, um, Venezuela and the U.S. are negotiating basically on the that the U.S. trusts that Venezuela will really adhere to the to their openness and to the democratic changes that they have, and what the U.S. gets it's um, more oil supply. That it's a very weird deal. Because if you're negotiating with somebody, you expect equal, um, equal. Let's say to have to have the equal leverage. And what I'm seeing from this negotiation is that they, is that Maduro is gaining a lot of ground, and the U.S. is running solely that Maduro will keep its word, which is something that should not be uh, that is not sound policy, and it's definitely not a sound uh, agreement. You're dealing with a human rights abuser. You're dealing with a dictator. You're dealing with somebody who has no interest in remaining in losing power. And the deal is that he will allow reforms that will eventually lead him to lose his power. So this is not a sound agreement. This makes no sense at all. But that's the current situation that the U.S. is dealing with Venezuela at this moment.
0: Suarez joining us there's not a lot the U.S. can do other than outside pressure and Maduro again he's kind of he, he came a little close maybe a few years ago he's kind of consolidated the power back down now it doesn't look like he's going anywhere what do you actually do with U.S. policy with something like this again it's not unusual to have to deal with dictators we deal with them in China we deal with them in the Middle East we deal with them also in Venezuela in this case what do we actually do about it other than just watch it from afar Obviously, there's some things we're doing. We just saw in the news where, you know, we're going to let more Venezuelan immigrants into the country under special protection, that sort of stuff. But that that's really small beer when you consider the enormity of the issues in Venezuela, because Venezuela has spilled out into the surrounding countries in South America. It part of the immigration problem and the migration problem that gets to the southern border. A lot of those are Venezuelans right now. This is a problem for the hemisphere and really the wider world. What should they be doing? Because economic pressure alone isn't going to change a dictatorship that this is ingrained, is it?
2: No, pressure from I I believe that pressure from one country alone will not change, even if even from the mighty U.S. If you want to say like that, it will not it will not change most, especially because uh, Venezuela still has very important allies like China. It has it has the aid of Iran. It has the aid of Russia. There's a big network of countries that align better with Venezuela than with the U.S., and that um, Venezuela has always been uh, very helpful for them in the matter of resources. So it's an important, it's an important piece for their, for their advancements. And even with pressure from the U.S., economic pressure from the U.S., it will not really help um, to bring down the, the Maduro regime. Nevertheless, that doesn't mean that the U.S. pressure is not important. And that's one of my main criticisms with the Biden administration is that they're making it easier for the regime well, by, by reducing sanctions, by negotiating with them, by treating them like like a, like a regime that does not commit human rights abuses and does not deal with, um, has not tortured in the past uh, U.S., US citizens. And that's a very dangerous precedent. That's something that the US should not be allowing itself. It should be more strong in its stance and and the deals, be way more careful with the deals that we made with Venezuela. And the second thing that what we should do to to deal with the tears like that is first, um, it cannot be done by one country. The US needs to start uh, finding cooperation with different countries in Latin America. The U.S. needs to focus more to find its allies in Latin America to coordinate um, actions against Venezuela and other allies of Venezuela around the region. Because it's not only Venezuela either. We have Cuba, we have Nicaragua. We have other countries in the region that have been aiding the Venezuelan cause in their dictatorship for years. We now see Mexico with Lopez Obrador who is a very big supporter of both Cuba and and Venezuela and Nicaragua, so those things are very dangerous right now. It's a very difficult time to really take action in Venezuela because um, the whole the whole region has shifted left very drastically, and we see many governments in the region that are uh, pro-left, pro-Maduro, and so and the ones who are the least aren't that opposed, aren't opposed enough to really impose a change in the region and try to pressure them. Um, But definitely what the US is doing is not helping the situation. Instead of putting more pressure and, and making it hard for Maduro to expand and to regain power and to regain the confidence of the regime, because at the end of the day, the regime starts down in itself, it will collapse by itself. What this administration has done is to give the power back and the confidence back and revenue back to the regime to keep to keep going forward. And in my opinion, this has been a big backtrack on the policy that Venezuela up for Venezuela that the U.S. has been having. So while economic sanctions are not enough, and there is there is really a need to act um, uh, as a region in cooperation, uh, reducing sanctions because it's not the right time right now to make those policies as a whole, uh, is not an excuse. And definitely making the deals that the U.S. is making right now with Venezuela is not even, it's not even an action to, to keep the, the governments in line, to keep the regime in line. It's, it's just feeding more and more into the government and into the regime. And more years of this policy, if this policy continues, I feel that Venezuela could become a big danger in the region.
0: Yeah, Eric Suarez, I think you touched on something really important. So let me ask you the bigger question as we go forward when it comes to Venezuela, because and this is bigger than the Biden administration or the Trump administration, because this is more of a generational problem. Your cohort, the rising generation, you just talked about it. There's a lot of a leftward shift. There's a shift back towards strongmen that we haven't seen since the 70s and 80s. And we know how that went in the 70s in some countries like Chile and other places, It did not go well. Even Argentina, if you go back far enough, it doesn't work out well. How much of that, what's the attitude towards America? Because, frankly, there's not a lot of appetite in America for foreign policy right now across the board, both sides, both parties. There's, you know, their focus is elsewhere. We've got internal troubles. Of course, you already mentioned, you know, Ukraine and the war with Russia's invasion there. America just hasn't paid attention to South America and Latin America a whole lot in the last 20, 25 years or so, other than a few specific issues. How has that changed how we are perceived, the country, America, by that rising cohort, your peers down south? Because I think that has a lot to do with that, doesn't it?
2: It does, and and that's something that we can analyze historically. I feel I believe that the last, let's say, uh, government or or administration that tried to do something and had like an, an an idea or or proposals that deal with Latin America was Bush with the NAFTA, sorry, with the with the Free Trade Agreement of the Americas, which was his proposal back in the 2000s, I believe. Um, but that was very a very wrong time to do it, or not wrong, but but unfortunate time to propose and to have a, a very important plan for the region because he was also the rise of Hugo Chavez, which was a powerful, a very powerful uh, figure in Latin American history. Uh, love him or hate him. I, I really dislike him, as you may know, as most Venezuelans, but Hugo Chavez was a very important figure in the history of Latin America as a whole. We haven't seen a shift or or a, or a, such a popular Figure in the region since Fidel Castro, and when a when such a figure appears, and such figure is so is so radical and so left leaning, it has a generational impact. I was born in 1999 when he first got into power, and since that moment, you have seen how generations of Venezuelans, really that grew up with him, especially in, um, in Venezuela, see him as, as a figure like. You could compare with the Republican Party, like people see Reagan. It's that figure of he was our leader. He was the he was the man that represented the good change in the country. Even if they're wrong, that's how they see it. And outside of Venezuela, he's highly appreciated and highly respected by many people as well, especially from the left. And when you come with that and, and after generations and seeing everything that has been going on, Venezuela, and the lack of the U of U.S. involvement in the region has uh, resulted in a huge shift in Latin America in the recent years. We now see that there's many governments that uh, support a line of thought very similar to Maduro in the region. We saw in Peru, with Pedro Castillo, who was a literal Marxist, uh, win elections in, a few years ago. We saw Gustavo Petro, which is very... Left-leaning, he was uh, part of a, guerilla, a guerrilla in Colombia. Also, win power left-wing guerrilla. Uh, we see Lula da Silva, who has been a long-time ally from uh, from the Venezuelan regime, gain power in, in Brazil. We have seen uh, 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 the Kirchners win power in Argentina again. Uh, we have we now see AMLO, uh, López Obrador in Mexico, who has been a clear ally from the regime. Uh, wind power in Mexico. We have seen a, a whole new generation of left wing uh, governments rise up. And that's a combination from uh, the figure of Hugo Chavez and the lack of US, of a US plan for the region. The, the US has been isolating itself from, from South America. I don't think there is a plan about South America. And I think that the policies imposed in Latin America from the US or, or, the, or the approach that the US has taken on Latin America has been more reactive than proactive you don't see a plan you don't see a guideline you don't know what to do how to navigate it you don't see a an end goal you see a, a lot of reactions to what's going on and that's very dangerous and the result of that is a region that no longer considers you a leader that no longer no longer pays attention or or, or cooperates with you that has been isolating from you again. And when it comes to politics and when it comes to cooperation, um, it, it, that's terrible. That's and that's the result of an isolationist uh, foreign policy from the U.S. Or not isolationist, but uh, uh, rem- removing itself from, from Latin America and from their regional politics.
0: Yeah, the thing with foreign policy is it has to be consistent and it has to be coherent and America is not good at either one of those for quite a while now. Eric Suarez, this has been a fantastic conversation. We'll definitely be having you back. We're going to link to his whole piece in Real Clear World uh, on the Venezuelan oil deal. Make sure you read that. Let folks know where they can keep up with you and how they can follow you until we get you back on the show again, my friend.
2: Yeah, um, uh, my handle in both Twitter and Instagram is at Eric N. so that's it. (laughs)
0: simple we got to work on your branding because you got good stuff we got to get you some stuff <laughs> maybe get you some merchandise something eric suarez <laughs> thank one you one of our great young voices contributor outstanding job great insight we'll talk again soon my friend thank you thank you sir all the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com so
1: Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcast at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.
0: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done.